Welcome to the AJP podcast, a podcast for pharmacists by pharmacists, where we discuss current events, relevant topics and emerging issues. I'm your host, Carly McMoore, and together with the AJP, I'm bringing you the opinions and expertise of different pharmacists to discuss their views and insights on topics relevant to pharmacists. Please like and rate each episode and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Can you please introduce yourself? Yes, so my name is Jared McMoore. I'm the Victorian Branch Manager for the Pharmaceutical Society of Australia and I'm our subject matter expert on harm reduction and opioid um, replacement therapy or opioid dependence treatments, depending on which term you want to use. I think throughout the rest of this talk we'll use the acronym ODT for simplicity. So what were your thoughts about the recent changes to the supply of ODT on the f for the 1st of July? Yeah, I guess the first thing is we should discuss what those changes actually are. So um, from the 1st of July, the medications that are subsidised by the PBS, which is methadone liquid, suboxone films, subutex tablets, and the long-acting injectable buprenorphine, they have been transferred from a specific section of the PBS called the opioid dependence section to the section 100 um, community access medications. So what that means is they're now subject to the same um, PBS subsidies as other medications. They're no longer subsidised at the manufacturer. So pharmacies now have to purchase those medications at a wholesale cost and they dispense those medicines to an individual as a PBS benefit for which the individual pays a copay, which will be either $7.30 or $30 at this point in time. We're in August of 2023. Um, and in addition, the government has implemented a change to their existing stage supply funding arrangements that are, are done through the uh, Pharmacy um, Programs Administrator, or PPA. And that addition allows for the inclusion of ODT medicines under the stage supply program to cover the traditional daily dispensing fee that, that clients have had to pri privately pay. So what that means is now a client of uh, ODT programs has at, at the pharmacy has an upfront fee of either $7.30 um, if they're a concession or $30 per item if they're a general patient. And if they've got two different strengths of Subutex or Suboxone, for instance, they'll have multiple fees. But they don't have a daily fee anymore and that's handled by the government for them. So as a cost uh, barrier, it's significantly better for clients now. Um, from the pharmacy perspective, what this actually means is a change in the way that we actually handle the prescriptions. We now are required to dispense the medications in such a manner that we create a volume or a quantity, depending on if we're talking about liquids or films or tablets, but that, that are allocated to a person as a virtual, um, a, a virtual quantity or, or volume of liquid in that person's name and so over the period of the life of that prescription the pharmacist will um, provide either a daily supervised dose or a takeaway dose out of that allocation and then when it reaches either the end of the allocation or the end of the life of the prescription which could be six months expiry or a date specified the doctor sorry specified by the doctor then that allocation becomes zero um, or is no longer accessible. So to give some examples of what I mean by that, 
uh, if you've got a prescription for a client and they've got 10 mils per day as their daily dose, under the business rules uh, set out in this new program, the doctor would calculate 28 days of that medication, which would be 280 mils. They'd write a prescription for 280 milliliters of methadone, and they can put two repeats on it if they wish. And then the, when the pharmacist dispenses it, they allocate 280 mils to that person. Uh, it is a virtual uh, volume that's been allocated, so it's not separated physically in your safe. Uh, and then as you provide daily doses, you keep track of how much you've provided over the period of time of that script or how much is left on, in their allocation. Uh, so if the person collects a dose every single day, on day 28, they'll get their last 10 mils and there'll be no volume left. At that point, you would either dispense a repeat if one exists or you would... Um, you would ask the person to provide you with a new prescription, which hopefully they've uh, obtained from their doctor in the meantime. There's clearly a lot more uh, going on in that space, a lot more. Uh, that's a fairly basic and simplistic overview of it, but that's that's the general over, overview of what's going on. Can you talk about the timeline and support to pharmacists and doctors around the changes to the ODT program? Yeah, I think this is a really important part of it and something that pharmacists are, uh, are really conscious of. Um, so the timeline of when pharmacists, the pharmaceutical industry, the wholesalers, software vendors um, and doctors, uh, for when they were became aware that these changes were on their way was um, much less time than the government um, themselves were aware of it. They They started implementing the changes... Um, significantly longer in time before we all found out. Um, part of that is due to their um, the way the federal budget works. They have constraints about what they're allowed to talk about. That's going into the budget. And as this is a budget measure, measure there was not a lot of um, public communication about this particular change. So we had, bear with me, it's, it's hard to remember the exact timeline, but I think we had about six weeks prior to July. So that means we found out in, in May. Um, and f so from that point forward, PSA, as well as other stakeholders, um, I should be clear, but PSA s definitely had a lot of ongoing discussions with the, the Commonwealth about how this would look. Because it's it's one thing to say, we need to remove this as a cost barrier, because that that clearly is the most important outcome that, is, that has come from this. Cost barriers to clients accessing this program means that people are not accessing it, and therefore people are at risk of death or actually dying. So... The one side of it is it's great to have a funding model that recognises that um, for clients, but we also have to be recognising the fact that pharmacies and doctors have to make this program work, and that means we have to make sure that the the new way of doing things will actually work, that there's not going to be any um, unforeseen you know, hitches or problems or any of those kind of things. So PSA and the Commonwealth certainly had a lot of discussions, and, and, and PSA put forward to the Commonwealth a number of our... Um, initial concerns, our initial thoughts, what we thought was the right way to structure the program. For instance, the allocation um, of medicines. That was one aspect that we, we really prosecuted that particular idea um, to ensure that not only are we not then... So the issue with an allocation of medication is that it's a little bit different from any other PBS medicine. We don't say to a person, well, here's your metoprolol script, by the way, we're allocating 30, script, uh, 30 tablets, come and pick them up on a daily basis. Um, we also can't do the opposite with methadone. We can't say to a person, here's 28 days worth of your medicine. Here it all is at once. That's besides the point of the program. But we do know that people miss doses. They have changes in circumstances. They get change in doses. They change from methadone to suboxone or back and forth. 
And as a result, there is allocations that a pharmacy will have claimed payment for that are no longer appropriate to provide to that person. And so in in the PSA's discussions with the Commonwealth around this matter, we said to them, we have to be very clear and have it in writing and um, have no no doubts about a process wherein a pharmacy may have claimed for a quantity as per the prescription, but where that quantity is no longer appropriate to be provided, that the pharmacy no longer gives access to that quantity for that individual as an allocation, and the PBS does not seek reimbursement for unused allocations. And so the department has been um, very cooperative in in that approach uh, to ensure that pharmacies can have the minimal amount of disruption to the workflow in running the program once it's well established and up and running and, and working. Um, the other aspect of the time frame that we all have to be very uh, mindful of is the the previous arrangement was a client would pay usually up front um, a daily fee or let's say a weekly or fortnightly or monthly fee that would be less than their average daily fee. So in, in my practice in, in pharmacies that I've worked with, worked in or owned we would do, uh, let's say, a $5 daily fee, which has been the same for roughly 20 years. And if somebody paid for an entire week ahead of time, we would get them to pay um, six days. So they'd basically be getting a day for free. Um, In the new program, the government is looking after all of that for the benefit of the client. We have to do extra work to demonstrate that we are entitled to that payment for work done. Uh, and it is now paid in arrears. So for those pharmacies that have started doing this from the 1st of July, they have basically gone from a scenario where they were being paid up front in June. They've had no payments for their daily um, uh, work and significant amount of work that goes into dispensing uh, and supervising the doses of of ODT medicines. Uh, And now, this is August when we're speaking, um, the ability to claim for those payments has now gone live. So we're waiting to see how pharmacies are, are, are working in that space and how simple the process is. But that is an actual aspect of this the timing that we need to be very mindful of is that with six weeks notice, pharmacies have gone from a, um, a cash flow positive to a cash flow negative system in, in the short term. In the long term, once this program has been up and running for a while, assuming there's no further changes, it will be cash flow neutral because everybody will be getting paid. Um, It'll only be, um, as an overall program, for individual clients that you work with, it'll still be cash flow negative. You get it after you've started providing services and for pharmacies that set up the service for the first time. But if you've got a very stable program with a lot of clients, it'll pretty much be neutral. Um, So that timeframe really is an important aspect of that as well. There's been a number of pharmacies that we've had conversations with where they are concerned about the viability of this program. They, they've provided it for years at, for instance, a $5 daily fee because it's seen as a public service. But under a, under a government-funded arrangement, there are concerns that the amount of work needed to put in to, to demonstrate that you were entitled to a, a payment for work done and uh, so, yeah, that could be a real problem for the viability of the program because that's more work and more hours and therefore more cost in the program. But also, we know through, say, if you look at Medicare bulk billing, for instance, um, fees don't go up over time. They don't match inflation. So once you've got a government-funded model in place, you are looking at, um, in real terms... Uh, a reduction in the value of that payment over time. Um, so all of these things are going into 
um, concerns that pharmacies have about whether they should continue to provide this service going forward. And so a lot of the pharmacies that I've personally spoken to who have been thinking about whether this program is viable or not, they've been waiting for August to see what the claiming process is going to be like. And if it's straightforward and easy, then that keeps them on the program. If it becomes difficult or if there is a lot of... Um, uh, quibbling, I guess, is probably the right word. You know, hey, did you really, you know, did you really apply 31 doses or was it only 30? That kind of sort of minor, um, uh, minor issues that are getting, um, that could be reviewed and discussed and um, cause all types of heartache for pharmacies to try and prove that they're entitled to a payment can be a real problem. Now, we've got no reason to expect that that will happen. Um, but I will note that in recent months, pharmacies have having, been having a lot of issues around safety net PRF payments. So I've been speaking to pharmacies, so unrelated to the ODD program, but we've been speaking to pharmacies that have had safety net paperwork rejected because it's, you know, oh, you didn't put the uh, expiry date for the concession card of the partner of the person who triggered the safety net. So we've rejected the paperwork. And by the way, we've had it for so long that in the meantime, the safety net now is not going to work, the safety net number you've issued. So all those prescriptions that you've been dispensing in that person's name are now getting um, bounced back with a warning as well. So when that program is having you know, a lot of um, overly um, excessive focus on dotting the T's and crossing the I's, those kind of things, which I know is back to front, but that's sort of the way that I look at this, then we're worried that that might potentially happen in the future with this program. But in the short term, it looks like the PPA claiming side of things is running smoothly, uh, and it should get more and more smooth because the software vendors who work on dose um, tracking are working on how to have a report that can be uploaded in real time to the PPA portal. So that's a really, really long answer, but I guess the short answer is it was a very short period of time. There was a lot of work um, by PSA and other stakeholders to make sure things worked, but the amount of work that we've done is nothing in compared to the amount of work the pharmacists have done in their pharmacies to ensure that the transition of prescriptions under this new arrangement uh, has worked. Um, and Given that it was such a short period of time, the communications in this space have been very difficult to get out to everybody. So I've had a conversation today regarding some pharmacies that were not aware that these changes had come through. They weren't getting new scripts from the doctors because the doctors are also, you know, not every doctor who works in this space has heard about the changes either. And so I know of a pharmacy, for instance, that has not been um, using a PBS script they weren't aware of the transition arrangements, so they hadn't applied those transitions to existing scripts, and they've been charging the client throughout July for private out-of-pocket fees. So as if there'd been no change, because as far as they knew, there wasn't one. And so some of the work we're doing now is to try and work out with those pharmacies the correct way forward in how to um, ensure that the client gets access to the funding that they were expected to be able to get access to, um, without causing too much disruption. What are some of the issues that arose in the earlier stages of this program? I don't know how much time we have. Um, so that, that's probably a little bit overly humorous, but I guess the biggest one was from a pharmacist workflow perspective, here's, here's the one that I've encountered the most and it's understandable, but it's something we have to overcome. Pharmacists have always been used to an open-ended prescription that has whatever volume or quantity of medicines needed and that you provide that up until date X. That's always the way it's been. And if the doctor were to ring you, for instance, and say, listen, uh, I want them to have 
one more takeaway per week. You could annotate the prescription. Uh, you could include that into the existing cycle of care. Um, you could do dose modifications up and down, or you could even have that as an instruction on the prescription in the first place. But the idea is that you would collaborate with the GP, depending on how um, how communicative the GP is, um, because there's variability in that, of course, like just like like us. But um, over time, you would have you know you would dose whatever the dose would be uh, up until a date. We no longer have that. We now have prescriptions that are intended to last for 28 days with up to two repeats and we are still running into scenarios where a person is saying well listen uh this script runs out at 28 days right and we say no 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 the script runs out when the volume that has been prescribed by the doctor runs out or if the doctor has actually written a hard date on the script do not provide beyond this date so we, we know that life happens. And when I, what I mean by that is clients will miss days from time to time. Under the new system with the PBS medications, sorry, PBS prescriptions, streamline authorities for these medications, if the quantity is specified on the prescription, which is a requirement of these scripts, the quantity is what defines when you run out, not the date. Um, again, I, I need to um, have a, has a a caveat here that if the doctor writes a hard date on the script that date is is not negotiable but let's say the doctor doesn't put a date on uh, and you've got a 28 day um, volume that has been calculated based on their daily dose but they miss the dose at one point once you get to day 28 you will actually have another day left over in the allocation um, so assuming no other changes happen that is not technically a 28-day script anymore. It's now a 29-day script just because their volume lasted that long. So we need to to move our thinking away from time frames and start thinking much more about volumes. Now, this becomes all the more complicated and also highlights the need for this thinking because the way the streamlined authorities work, the there is no restriction on a prescriber for defining the volume on that prescription that they want to put on so as some examples that i know are happening in practice there are certainly some doctors uh in a region close to where uh, the pharmacy we used to own uh, is and that doctor writes a prescription for 14 days so that doctor clearly is not going to do a 28 day script they're going to calculate the volume and they're going to work out what 14 days is and they see that client every 14 days now this particular doctor that i have in mind has a quite complex caseload the clients are clients that don't don't see other doctors they're basically not welcome with other doctors the doctors have found them difficult to manage um, for various um, social issues and also the complexity of their treatment so it's appropriate in that instance for that doctor to write a 14-day script they want to see them every 14 days they want to see how they're going they want to monitor them etc but the opposite of that is also true so we've seen um, doctors who are writing volumes that when you do the calculation don't add up to 28 days they are much much longer than 28 days now I'm going to address this from two different aspects there are doctors who have always had an arrangement with very stable um, long-term clients where they would see them far longer between appointments than other clients who are on this program and so if that doctor is able to write a prescription that would last let's say two and a half months plus two repeats and they're going to see that client maybe every six months or so that is still appropriate and they, the streamlined prescriptions give them the capacity to do so within within a you know depending on what the daily volume is and because the maximum is 840 mils for instance but beyond that we've certainly seen doctors who have just defaulted 
to high volumes. Not because from a clinical reason, but because either the software has got that or they've just said, oh, I don't know what the volume is, let's just make up a number. Now, it's possible in those scenarios that the doctors are not understanding the impact of a prescription with a very large volume on it. They also may not be aware that we're not working on a time frame anymore. And if they don't specify a, a, a date on the script beyond which you're not to provide a dose, if they give an 840 mil volume prescription with two repeats for a person who's on 10 mils per day, that's an 84-day script plus two repeats for 84 days each. And if there's no indication when the appointment is, that person's not going back to that doctor for you know, eight and a half months. That's, that's not the intent of the Department of Health. Um, the intent of the Department of Health is for this to be a 28-day dispensing cycle so that the pharmacy would have a dispensing fee every 28 days. The client would have to pay that tw dispensing fee every 28 days. From a, from a client's perspective, there is a lot, a lot of value in saying, okay, every 28 days I've got a fee to pay. That helps. It helps with management of, of um, you know, cash flow for themselves. Um, but if we have doctors who are not uh, aware that a volume that they um, that they put on a prescription is now what you know the defining length of time on a prescription, and don't put a date for the ending of that prescription. They they might be um, we might have some real trouble in a few months' time where these uh, clients who've gotten very long scripts go back to the doctor and the doctor goes, oh, I thought you left the program because I haven't seen you for so long. Now I'm really hoping that's not going to occur. And where we have seen prescriptions with very large volumes on them. Um, everybody who's brought them to my attention has also spoken with the GP you know, who's written it. Um, so there is clearly communication going on, but we do need to be mindful that, that this practice is not in keeping what the intent of the changes are, but it's certainly not um, an incorrect prescription. Um, it, it may be clinically not appropriate, and therefore the, a discussion needs to be had, but it certainly meets the requirements of a streamlined script. At the recent PSA 23 conference, you held an extra unscheduled session to address the many questions pharmacists still have regarding ODT. Can you tell us some of the questions and your answers? Yeah, I think one of the, one of the most important questions that came up in that session, and so PSA put on that extra session in recognition of the fact that there are still a lot of questions, and that's normal when we have such a short period of time from announcement to implementation to working with this on the ground. Um, so at, at PSA, we had a panel session that included myself um, and a person with lived experience and um, David Laffin from the Department of Health. And we discussed the new program. Now, um, that session goes for 40 minutes, which is standard length of time for a panel discussion. But afterwards, I was approached by quite a large number of pharmacists with questions. So we said, listen, we need to respond to this um, and we need to make sure that pharmacists have the opportunity to, to ask their questions. Uh, in addition to that, um, for those people who haven't attended our conference, um, PSA certainly is providing ongoing advice to our members uh, when they contact. So if they if they contact me, for instance, and say, how do I deal with this? Um, we're responding to those on an ongoing basis as well. The most important question that I think came up is how to handle the um, medicines that have been allocated to a client that need to be zeroed that is, that person is no longer entitled to access that allocation due to the presentation of a changed prescription. And I'm using the word changed prescription here because 
Let, let's take a scenario where we've got a client who's on, again, we'll say the 10 mils per day because it, it makes the math easier. That's why I keep using that, that dose. So we have a 10 mils per day dose and they're getting 280 mils per prescription and they've got two repeats. And we get to a time that's about a week before the last repeat is due to have run dry because you've dispensed it, you've got so much allocation left. It's about a week until that allocation runs out and they present you with a brand new script for 10 mils per day, 280 mils with two repeats. Now, that is not a change in therapy. So you dispense that script when the existing allocation runs out and you just continue on. And you would do that ad infinitum until either the client decides they don't want to be on the program anymore or, you know, the heat death of the universe. So we just keep doing that on and on and on. Now, the the what the scenario I'm going to describe now is a little bit dependent on individual state rules. So we have to keep in mind the PBS just sets up a funding arrangement for us. We still have requirements under the states, and some states say if the doctor who is looking after a particular client changes that person's therapy in a meaningful way, then they are obligated to write a brand new prescription for them. Now, we have to keep in mind a prescription is not just a point in time description of you know here's what to supply to this person so if you have a prescription that again 10 mils per day 280 mils two repeats no no takeaways and the doctor says do you know what i'm not due for a new appointment but i do want to start having takeaways can we add two takeaways to this person's therapy um, not to be collected um, together you know so they get two takeaways per seven days in for instance, we'll use New South Wales as an example. The expectation from the New South Wales Department of Health is a new prescription is written. Now, we have a change in takeaway doses there. That is a change in therapy. It is not the same prescription. It is not appropriate to continue forward with the same prescription that they'd always had because it does not represent the current therapy. So that means that when you um, request from the doctor, can you see, please send me a new prescription? Uh, that new prescription comes in and you have to um, zero out the allocation on their previous script. And sorry, uh, let me backtrack that. You don't have to. This is one of the options you've got because in this scenario, it is a professional judgment of the pharmacist what is the correct thing to do with the existing allocation where the changes are not to the medicine being used, only to the directions on the script. So let's say um, you've got an allocation left over of 140 mils, so two-week supply for this client. You would certainly take the repeats from the previous prescription if there's any left. They are no longer accessible. They are cancelled. You do not cancel the prescription that you have dispensed because if you cancel it, the PBS is going to say, oh, that money is returned back to the government. That's what happens when you cancel a PBS script. But you need to annotate that this script is finished. You're no longer using it. And you dispense the new prescription. Now, regardless of whether you zero the allocation or not, when you dispense that new prescription, the client gets a new PBS copay. Now... That sounds okay in general, but if we have a change to a person's prescription a week after they started a brand new one, they're doing a new copay a week after they just made a copay. And that becomes, um, to a degree, an inequitable. But I would refer back to what we do with, for a client who's on Avapro 150. Sorry, I've just used brand name, Herbisartan 150. Uh, and they come in with a prescription for um, Herbisartan 300, for instance. And the doctor has said to them, you need to get the new medication filled. Now, in that scenario, 
let, let's let's compare this deallocation. We could say to that client, oh, you've got 150 milligram herbisartan and you've got a new script for 300. So just take two of them at a time up until the end of that, that what you've got left and then we'll start the new 300 milligram script. Or you might say this person's highly susceptible to confusion. Even just taking two tablets per day might be a problem for them. So bring back your old box. I'm going to put that in the rum bin because you shouldn't have access to it. It's more dangerous for you to have that than to not. So in the, in, if we get back to the scenario with the methadone um, volume that's been allocated to this client, you might say, um, from a workflow perspective, it makes sense for me to retain the person's allocation. They've got 140 mils left. I'm going to dispense the new prescription today because I need to be operating on the brand new prescription, but I'm going to take that new volume on that script and the allocation from the previous script, add them together. Or you could say, for consistency in the way that I handle this process every time, that allocation from an old script is zeroed. So a pharmacist has the option of doing either of those in that scenario. Um, if it was a change from methadone to suboxone, you would clearly just zero that allocation. There's no point in them staying on methadone up until it, all that allocation is used up. That's not appropriate. The intent is for them to change over to suboxone. So again, they're clearly going to have a new um, fee paid because you have to dispense a new medicine for them. But in addition to that, the medicine that they've um, paid to have an allocation available for them for that is zeroed out. And so that payment that they've made, unfortunately, no longer applies. And this has safety net implications as well. So um, if you were to go with the same medicine, so methadone, and dispense a new methadone script within 20 days, that's, that's not going to count towards their safety net. If you change from methadone to suboxone, it won't matter because it's a different PBS code. So that's probably the biggest question that we had in the session, um, the ad hoc session that we had in PSA, because clients are really, sorry, Pharmacists are really concerned about, well, what happens if I've been paid for a amount of medicine and I'm no longer to supply it? So we had to address that concern that the PBS is going to say you need to pay that back because they've already said, both in writing and on, on webinars that they've published, that that will not occur. But they also want to make sure that, well, if I have to pay, get a person to pay another um, dispensing fee, that's sort of not fair either. And, and I would say to that answer... From a from an individual's cash flow perspective, yeah, that's certainly true. It's it's a bit a bit bad luck that you would have to pay another dispensing fee, but it is again it's similar to any other medication where you've been on something and then they change your dose, and it might be more appropriate to dispense a new prescription than to continue on with whatever they've got. Let, if we go back to the herbisartan thing, maybe they're not going to be on herbisartan at all. Um, AR two Bs is not appropriate for this person. We're going to go over to I don't know a, a beta blocker, which will be third line. Um, you wouldn't say to that person, just use up your um, AR2B medicine until it's time to start the beta blocker. You would say, no, new fee, we should destroy that medication you've got and um, you're starting with this new medication today. Um, I think they, those were the biggest issues. Um, people certainly had concerns about the timing, as everybody does. It's been a very short period of time. But from a practical perspective, the biggest thing has been how to manage um, both the transition from uh, a previous script to a uh, new script, whether it's the same medicine or not, and how to handle payments from patients in that scenario. How have patients found the process? Yeah. Um, so I, I, my answers to this one is going to be far less long-winded. I, I do acknowledge that my answers have been really long so far. But um, from the feedback that I've got from um groups that represent people who are either with the program or who are, who do use drugs, and I've got quite a lot of contacts in that space, having worked in this space for a long time. Generally speaking, the change is very positive. Like, this is a huge impact on their cost of living, like dramatic. 
Um, there has been some anecdotes that have started to solidify into more concrete um, scenarios. The, the one that's of biggest concern to us is clients who have said to us, because I no longer have a daily out-of-pocket out of fee for my dispensing fees under the methadone or suboxone programs, my doctor has decided to no longer bulk bill me. Now, when that comment first came up, and this is coming from groups that represent people who are on the program, not from pharmacists. I mean, I've, I've had it corroborated by pharmacists, but this came from clients. The first time I heard it, I was worried that, okay, it, it's very possible that what's actually going on here is that this is a GP practice that is not bulk billing anybody anymore. And it's just coincidental. But we have had it corroborated that there are clients who are getting not bulk billed for their um, ODT pre uh, prescription appointments, but they are continuing to be bulk billed for their other appointments around their chronic um, health conditions. So one specific example that I have is a, a, of a person who sees their GP for both methadone prescriptions and for their hypertension treatment and for their diabetes. And if their appointment is about their diabetes or about their hypertension, they're still being bulk billed. And if it's for their methadone, they're being charged an out-of-pocket fee. Now that it concerns me because the whole point of making this change is to ensure that patients don't have price as a barrier. And I will note that the transition phase that was implemented, that pharmacists did all of the heavy lifting for, was to ensure that Medicare didn't have to pay for new scripts and doctors didn't have to do the work of issuing new scripts from the 1st of July. So it's it, it leaves a bit of a bitter taste in, in my mouth and I'm sure other pharmacists that if pharmacists have done all this heavy lifting for no extra payments, for despite significant work and significant risk, um, the professional and medico-legal risk of doing these transfer, transfer prescriptions is quite high, no payment for that. And yet there are small numbers, I want to be clear, small numbers of doctors, not large, but small numbers of doctors who are no longer bulk billing because they're like, well, you don't have that out-of-pocket fee, so I'm going to charge you instead. That's um, very disappointing to say the least. What, how have doctors found the process? This is one area where I haven't had a lot of feedback. Um, I've got a number of colleagues who are doctors who work in this space, and I've yet to get a lot of feedback from them. I do know um, one, one of the matters that PSA brought up with the government was that software updates for doctors um, uh, don't always have all the changes in place, and clinics don't always run them because there's been a history of you know clinic will run an update and it might junk their database for whatever reason, not, you know, a whole number of factors could lead to that. And so rightly or wrongly, clinics are a bit gun shy about running uh, updates immediately. So we do know that there were prescriptions in July that weren't PBS ready, but we were able to use the transition um, arrangements for those scripts as well. Um, I don't, honestly don't know. I, I've certainly had um, feedback from some high volume prescribers that don't seem to be aware about the changes. And when um, pharmacies or even state health departments have contacted some doctors about this, they just go, listen, I've been working in this space for 30 years. I know what I'm doing. And that that's not fantastic. But, you know, that's certainly the experience that, that some pharmacists are getting from, from some of the GPs. I think overall, um, certainly the peak bodies are, have the same opinion that PSA does. It's a short time frame, but the overall benefit to clients is positive. And, and we, we need to make sure we don't lose sight of that. 
we need to make sure that the program is still fully accessible for everybody. Um, I don't believe that the process for GPs um, or for um, specialists who work in the AOD space is anywhere near as complex as it has been for pharmacists. Pharmacists have definitely had a lot more work to do in this space. So um, I can't really talk to how their experiences are going, but there have certainly been a few speed bumps when seen from the perspective of the pharmacists who are having to smooth out those speed bumps for them. Can you tell me about the system coming into play on the 1st of August for the reimbursement of ODT dispensing fees and what pharmacists need to know and how to prevent common errors? Yeah, so that change is for the daily dispensing fee. Uh, this is probably the simplest part of this process, although this is what I was talking about earlier with the cash flow issue. So um, from the 1st of August, the ability to claim for doses that have been provided as a supervised dose or provided as a takeaway dose or prepared in good faith but not collected and unable to be um, returned to stock, um, pharmacists are able to make uh, claim for payment for those now through the PPA portal. This does require the pharmacist to have obtained permission from the patient consent for their information to be provided to uh, PPA as a Commonwealth agent. Um, the reason for that is is because you do need to share information such as the person's name and Medicare number, although the doses that are then um, um, provided are just tracked against their Medicare, is my understanding. Um, so at the moment, this does require a manual process. Um, moving forward, the PPA is working with the software vendors who do the dose administration um, um, support for pharmacies. They're going to work in such a way that as you track your daily dosing in your software, uh, you'll be able to run a report at the end of the month. And I, I'm not going to speak for the software vendors, but I'm going to do an extremely basic example of what it would look like. You would get to your software at the end of the month and you press a button. Uh, and that button generates a report that says these are all the doses you've provided, either methadone or suboxone or subutex. Um, over the uh, last month, you look at that, you confirm that it's correct, you hit another button and that coordinates with the PPA's website and it uploads. Now that is the ideal state and that's still some months away because the PPA needs to make sure that their database is stable and they also need to work with the software vendors to develop an API for that information to be transferred um, automatically like that. Um, at the moment most pharmacies are having to do it manually either because they're using paper or because the software um, still requires to generate a report and you've got to put in all the privacy um, information anyway. Um, but I would expect that at the end of August, when we do our August claim in September, that the process of generating a report that shows the doses you've provided will be fairly simple and you'll just be able to go into the software and say, here's client XYZ, um, put it against their Medicare number and, and claim that. So I've yet to hear any feedback about any troubles. We are less than a week into August. Um, I will note that the amount of feedback that PSA was getting on issues around prescription transfer, so transitioning from the private scripts into the PBS scripts, we had significant feedback in a very short period of time. Whereas on this matter, it's been open now for a number of days and I've had very, very little feedback, if any, specifically about the claiming process. So I'm taking that to mean that either nobody's done a claim, which is very unlikely, or those who have done a claim have found it relatively straightforward um, I don't know about the time frame to do that claim, but I will say that it's 
unpaid. We don't get paid for the time taken to do that, that work. Um, so finding a streamlined way to make that uh, be as efficient as possible is, is certainly the reason for the software vendors to work with PPA in that space. How many pharmacists have you heard of that have made changes to their program, such as the times that they supply um, ODT to their patients or those that have discontinued the service altogether? The answer to this question is a little complex, mainly because most of the changes that I hear about people um, putting in place in their pharmacies for the ODT program are not directly related to the ODD program. They're actually related to the impact of the 60-day dispensing um, changes that are that are slated to start in September. So pharmacies that have been operating this program at a loss um, but do so as a public service, when they are doing their math around their 60-day dispensing um, impacts, might say, listen, this is just an area that we can't continue to do because we're going to lose money in other spaces. We have to cut costs, and this is one of them. Um, while I would love to see the program available in every pharmacy, it is completely understandable that if that's the impact that the 60-day changes are going to have on your pharmacy, then you, you can't fault a pharmacy for removing a program if it is actually losing them money. Um, as great of a public service as it is, like if the pharmacy shuts down, there's no service at all for anything regardless. Um, I've certainly had some pharmacies that were on the edge of viability as far as the specific program is concerned rather than the entire program. And they were certainly waiting to see how the um, PPA daily fee claiming would go. And if that process is straightforward and they can see their cash flow starting to return to what it was pre-July in on the, for this particular program, then they will stick with it. But if there are any real disruptions to that program, if there's any changes to the way the fees come through, um, for instance, if it's if they're frozen, if they're not um, if they're not in some manner um, uh, linked to inflation over time, um, if there's ever a cap introduced on the number of claims that can be made, any of these kind of things, I think that would disrupt the program significantly. I will also note so. As noted at the start, I'm the branch manager for Victoria with the PSA. Victoria is the only state in the country that doesn't have any kind of financial support from the state government to pharmacies that participate in this program. And PSA, in collaboration with the Guild, has approached the Victorian government about this and said, listen, we, we think that this is a program that is at risk and the impact if, if pharmacies stop providing this service, the impact will be on the Victorian state government's health budget just as much as it is on, an, on you know, from a public um, health uh, concern. And so we have put it to them that they should consider how they would match other states that currently do provide funding. Um, it would be nice to see um, a recognition of this service. And I will also note um, that would need to be applied to prescribers on the program as well. In my opinion, those doctors who engage um, in the program in good faith, who want to see better outcomes for clients, they should also be incentivized to either stay in the program, take on more clients, or to bring along their, their colleagues and teach them how to do it, show them the benefits of the program as well. I, I would like to see that um, going forward. But if I had a choice, I want to make sure the pharmacies are recognized. And then if it's a choice between us or, or another profession, then I'd, I'd like to see pharmacy recognised in this space because it's quite often the last the last sector that, that gets recognised for all the work that we do. 
um, but hopefully they can find a way to, to contribute to both. What else can pharmacists expect to see in the ODT space? Um, I guess the other thing, one of the things that we haven't touched on here is the long-acting injectable buprenorphine. Now, there has been an, a, a few different types of practices that have come to light with the changes to the PBS that have, from a clinical perspective, concerned me. Like, I've worked in this space for a really long time, and I've seen a lot of different things, and I know what is safe and what is not safe with regards to these medicines, because we're talking about a medication in its own right, especially when we talk about methadone. Methadone can be really unsafe, really, really unsafe, if not used properly. Um, we've seen scenarios where it turns out that a person has been getting doses from one pharmacy on the weekdays and another pharmacy on the weekends. Um, just the thought of doing that makes my skin crawl from a professional and medical legal perspective because the risks of that client inadvertently or intentionally getting an excessive dose is really high because that requires a really, really high level of communication. So why is this coming up with LAIB? My opinion is that if you've got a client who is traveling for work uh, in, his one, in one area for work and is another area for recreation or home, weekends, etc., that person is ideal for LAIB. So what should we see in this space? We should see pharmacists understanding the role of LAIB. They should be an advocate for their clients in accessing this treatment option. Um, if you've got a client who is at risk of overdose, um, the reality is LAIB is dramatically safer than takeaway doses for methadone, for instance. It's so much safer. Um, it's more appropriate. It gives people far more flexibility. It's still a month between um, dosing once they're stabilized on a, on a particular product. Um, but going to a pharmacist and or a prescriber once a month uh, compared to going in on a regular basis. So the maximum possible time between visiting a pharmacy under any of the other ODT programs is 14 days. So that's in Queensland for the very long um, uh, unsupervised dosing for Suboxone films. Um, every other scenario has pharmacists seeing a client pretty much every three days at a minimum um, and very likely daily for the majority of the time. Whereas LAIB, you're talking about a month or you know maybe maybe three weeks for some people it wears off a little bit earlier but you know you can get into a cycle with that so it adds a lot of um, a lot of stability to that person's life pharmacists should normalize the idea of having discussions with clients about what their options are with regards to LAIV they should also undertake the training for administration of LAIV which does require you to have done um, other administration training first which generally for pharmacists means vaccination training but they should be looking at you know what is the real potential for LAIB as a service in their pharmacies, should you be looking to transfer clients from Suboxone and or Methadone into LAIB uh, over a period of time and develop a, a service to match that? In addition, there are, there are going to need to be relationships between pharmacies that are able to dispense LAIB and clinics, private practice, um, etc., that currently provide LAIB to clients sort of in an ad hoc type basis. So, um, you know, if you've got uh, a service that currently provides the LAIB injections under the, f you know, fully funded free model that's existed up until now, that's going to stop for them in November. They're going to need a supply of LAIB. So if you know that that service is in your, in your region, 
make contact with them. Be the pharmacy that's going to offer a service where they provide you with the prescriptions for the clients they're seeing that, that day or that week and you're providing the delivery of those medicines to that, that clinic. Um, it doesn't address every issue, but um, you know it, it's a solution you can be and it can be um, quite rewarding if you get you know a good volume so that your workflow uh, takes advantage of the dispensing fees associated with that. How do you see the ODT process moving forward? Um, so I guess the first thing is this. If, if this change had occurred with a nice period of time for implementation um, and it wasn't also coupled with 60-day, then I think most pharmacists everywhere would be like saying, okay, this is a great move. This is really good. I don't know that there's much else that could be done uh, in the ODT space with the current medicines that we have. We've now got the right funding model for clients. We have to have we have to ensure that, for the pharmacy perspective, that there are no caps and that there is some recognition of the need for those fees to go up uh, over time with inflation, so that we're not going backwards in time. And we need to make sure that the way prescriptions are written uh, are not minimising um, the role of pharmacists, for instance. Um, other than the introduction of new medicines then I think we're probably going to see this being the way forward for the next 20 years like it was for the last 20 years until the introduction of LAIV. We sort of had the same program forever. Then LAIV came and started disrupted a few things in, in quite a good way. And then a year and a half later, we've got the new funding model. Um, I, I'm thinking that unless we get new medications that are shown to be very effective, that we probably won't see much more in the ODT space. The other thing that I think is worth looking out for is new treatment paradigms that ref that will replicate ODT. So there is potential new models coming for the um, pharmacological treatment of um, amphetamine dependence and potentially some other um, agents as well over time. So we may well see a replication of this program for other, um, other conditions, other substances, but I think for now we're probably we, this is probably what it's going to look like for a while. It's just we've got to get over this short period of time where all the disruption is happening, let it settle, and make sure that pharmacies can viably deliver the service. Is there anything else you'd like to add? So I guess the last thing we can say is that um, PSA is certainly uh, undertaking the role of providing as much advice to pharmacists in this space as possible. I would like to highlight our member service line. So this number is not specific to ODT and is only available to members, but it's 1300 369 That line, they will certainly answer ODT questions for members. Um, PSA is um, working with the Commonwealth Department of Health. We've done some webinars, for instance, and some other information pieces, but PSA wants to make sure that pharmacists are supported in this space. Um, so we are uh, looking to work with government in ensuring that they put out also communications in this space. But I think um, anybody who is really struggling um, to understand the changes, they should reach out. If you're not a member of PSA, I would highly recommend joining because this is one area where you're definitely going to get the value of your membership, um, both from the advocacy that we've done in this space to make it a workable program, but also in the advice that you can get specifically around these issues. Um, and that's both through the the website as well and the ECP Facebook page that exists and has existed for a while, but personalised one-on-one uh, advice will be gotten through that uh, advice line number as well.
We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the AJP podcast. If you have any thoughts, comments, or suggestions about this episode, please visit the AJP website forum at ajp.com.au and join the conversation. If you have any suggestions for future topics or would like to participate in the podcast, please follow us on Twitter at AJP Podcast and send us a message.